Extension 720 with Milt Rosenberg on 720 WGN. There's so much that one could talk about with my special guest for this evening, Martha Nussbaum, that indeed I have a bit of a problem as to where to begin. But just as I was working over some of your materials this very afternoon, I came upon a very simple assertion that you made in an interview with somebody in which you said that philosophy uh, has worth only if it helps to bring a more just world. And the man who was interviewing you objected. He said he loves philosophy for its arcane nature and its irrelevance to mere uh, <laughs> community concerns. Yeah. Uh, are, can one divide philosophy that way, the useful and the unuseful? Well, you know, I meant that remark, and I think in the context it, it would be clear, only about moral and political philosophy. I think uh-huh. that obviously logic, well, metaphysics, metaphysics, is okay. metaphysics yeah. epistemology, they, there's absolutely no practical usefulness to a lot of that, and it's just beautiful and elegant for its own sake. Uh, But moral and political philosophy, I think, you know, from Aristotle on, I mean, who said our aim is not just theory, but also practice, there's been the idea that it's about how we live. Well, really, Plato, who says it's no chance matter we're discussing, but how one should live. And so the aim is always to give some kind of guidance. And in the case of political philosophy, really, I think all the greats have been people who really cared about their ideas. Well, does philosophy illuminate and clarify so that it builds up uh, a substantial base, ever-expanding, of, in a way, verified and certain knowledge with regard to how one should live? Because if that were true, then we would be living better now, that is, more ethically, more decently, more humanely, than we were living a hundred or surely 2,000 years ago. If people listen to the philosophers, which usually they don't, Is that the flaw? Well, that, I think, is one flaw. But look, I think it's not about providing policy blueprints. And I think if you move too quickly to the bottom line, you miss what philosophy has to offer. But it's about clarifying the alternatives and the reasons we have for supporting one rather than the other. It's really what Socrates was trying to do in Athens. It's walking up to somebody and asking, why are you doing this? And often they can't answer. And when they start reflecting, then they get clearer about their own activity and what their choices are. And and, and so that's the benefit, I think. And Socrates' student and friend, Plato, was very interested as well, not merely in what uh, the ethical life is, but how you then elaborate that to build a good society, a good collectivity. And surely his uh, younger colleague, Aristotle, had the same interest. And from there forward, we've had political philosophy, which is very much concerned with how you build the just, the good, the, for that matter, the stable and lasting society. Uh, Machiavelli is really writing about that, yeah. though he's got a bad rep, a bad rep well, in the Well, and a lot of them were major statesmen. I've just finished teaching a course on Cicero, and after all, he says that every statesman should do philosophy because it helps you see more clearly what, what you're going to do. But, of course, he could do philosophy only when he was out of power because he didn't have time. So, uh, so he did that, and then he tells his children, though, that they ought to go and do philosophy because only that will make your choices clear. And if the young Octavian Augustus hadn't killed him, yeah. he would have done a good deal more philosophy. Oh, yeah. I mean, he died trying to save the Republic, and he had very good ideas about what it should be. But, of course, Octavian, um, as you say, killed him as he was trying to get away to join yeah. the conspirators over in Asia. Well, we've had a long tradition of political philosophers concerned with uh, how to organize the good in sociability and in uh, in collectivity. Obviously, uh, the Englishman Locke, Hobbes, uh, uh, for that matter, 
Uh, Hume is interested in that, though it's yeah. not his major Adam focus. Smith. Adam Smith and so on. We've got the French tradition. Uh, we've got the great contrast between Rousseau and uh, just about all of the rest of us. Yeah. And then you've got the utilitarians, I mean, Bentham, Mill, and Sidgwick, so, who are always very involved. In so politics. have we profited from any of that? Well, really? I think we really have. Uh, that is to say, look, utilitarianism, which I don't entirely agree with, has done a good deal of good for economic thought. Uh-huh. Uh, even though it has defects, I think the criticisms build on the successes of utilitarianism. All right, now and, for our general audience, tell them in a quick okay. sidebar, what is utilitarianism? It's the idea that the goal of a society is to improve people's welfare and that it matters what people think and feel about their lives and that you should they say you should pursue the total or average welfare and i think one of the problems we we see with that is that it means you funnel everyone's satisfactions together so that if there are a few people at the bottom that doesn't matter because that's made up for by the exceeding happiness of the people at the top so so it gave rise to lots of criticisms about distribution but still the very idea that society is about people and the welfare of people was a, an amazing and radical idea at a time when British, British society was divided by class and people thought, oh, it's about the happiness of the upper classes only. And actually, Bentham thought it was not just human happiness, but it was also the happiness of all animals. So he, he was the first uh, defender of animal rights, but he was also a mm-hmm. tremendous opponent of the slave trade. And all of the utilitarians were passionate crusaders for human equality, and and the theory contains that. So now economic thought really does contain that deep insight that each person counts for one, as Bentham said, and no one counts for more than one. This leads us directly onto one major line of your work, what is called the capability approach, I would think. Well, yeah, the capability approach builds, I would say, on – the utilitarian idea that society is about promoting welfare, but it says, look, welfare, it's really building on John Stuart Mill more than on Bentham because Mill said, look, welfare isn't a single thing. It has different parts and you have to keep those parts separate because you don't want to say that promoting political liberty is the same thing as promoting health or education. So the capability approach, which Amartya Sen, an economist who won the Nobel Prize in 1998, uh, developed and I've extended, is an approach that says society is really about giving people opportunities to choose to lead their lives in distinct areas, including education, health, bodily integrity, political liberty. And and I hold in my hand, as Senator McCarthy used to say, (laughs) uh, Nussbaum's 10 central capabilities. (laughs) Uh, What is a capability? A capability is an area of choice. It's an opportunity to choose. And and so the the reason for focusing on what you can do rather than what you actually are doing is to say society is about promoting freedom. It's not about forcing people to do things. It's about giving people religious liberty, not making them religious in in a a coercive way. So it's really quite a libertarian view. And and we've got 10 of them specified. I'm about to serve um, an 11th good, namely the good of the radio station, by (laughs) allowing the advertisers to have a word or two. But when we return after that, I'd like to run through those 10 capabilities that you argue would have to be supported by any democratic system if it's worth uh, it's uh, if it's worth uh, its reputation as a true democratic system. Uh, these are really desiderata for the good life, uh, organized somehow in a way that serves uh, all in a given society. Uh, that is, 
the consummation devoutly to be attained yeah. and to be wished, but never, ever attained to this point. No. Let's talk then about how we really build a good society, what the requirements are, uh, as, uh, as surveyed or rather as listed by Martha Nussbaum. On to that right after this. Extension 720 with Milt Rosenberg on 720 WGN. Martha Nussbaum has just, uh, has just committed her 20th or is it 22nd book titled Philosophical Interventions. Uh, that is a collection of her reviews, mostly from the New York Review of Books and also some, I gather, from New Republic. New Republic, yeah. Uh, but reviews written all the way from 1986 to, uh, uh, to last year. Uh, but... Um, and they're, they're, they're fascinating essays. A good book review needs to be an essay in itself. And these are fascinating essays. A number of them really caught my interest and uh, even uh, had me thumping the table. She's right. And a few points in the margin, no. Well, so, I would expect that. That's yeah, the whole point, really, that is, is to, well, that's, to argue and provoke. That's discourse, to be sure. Yeah. Uh, and we'll, I want to turn to some of those later. But right now, getting back to the, um, the burden that I imposed upon you, or is it a very welcome task? Um, you really listed what you take to be the 10 um, criteria that ought to be met if you're going to have a decent democratic society. What are they? Yeah, and they're very abstract because the idea is that each nation makes them more concrete mm-hmm. by legislation but also in its constitution. Does it in its own style. So life, health, bodily integrity – development of senses, imagination, and thought. So that's a very big one that includes religious liberty and freedom to of association and freedom of, of speech and so on. And then there's practical reason. That is just the very general thought that people can make a plan of life of their own and make choices with respect to it. So that would include things like the free choice of occupation, uh, so it's all of these are, are quite capacious. And then there's affiliation, that a good society should provide for uh, personal relations, family relations, but also good civic relations, good relations in the workplace. And then there's emotional health, which is something that a lot of people neglect. But law can do a lot to prevent people from living in fear, from prevent them from having to have fear every time they walk down the street. It can also um, give them places to exercise justified anger, to protest, to dissent, and so on. So emotional health. Uh, then good relations with other species and the world of nature. Leisure time. I call it the capacity to play because I think of it as running through the whole of a human life. But it really has a lot to do with not having a society where people go from an long workday to doing some other kind of taxing labor and never have time to explore their own minds, to have leisure, to enjoy beauty and and so on. So leisure time. And then finally, control over one's material and social environment. And of course, that can be cashed out in lots of different ways, workplace relations, political access, but also property rights. I do think that any good society needs to be make room for personal 
property and and real property, and so not just owning your your little. So a society that, that maximized on all of those dimensions would be a good society. Well, I don't think of it as a maximizing approach. I think of it as a threshold approach mm-hmm. because I think then that met the minimal the, 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 the threshold. You set the threshold pretty high up, all and right. then when you get above that threshold, then there are many choices that a society can. So make you could about do a profile with ten particular points on it. If you did such a profile for life in Chicago now, mm-hmm. how would we do? And Chicago, as a, as if not a typical, at least a significant American city. Thus, we're judging yeah. either America or Chicago. Well, I think you know all American cities and most of America does very well on political and religious liberty, and I do think that it does better than Europe. Uh, I've just been writing a book about religious intolerance in Europe. Uh, and, you know, I think it does wonderfully well on affiliation opportunities to enjoy associations of many kinds. The beauty of the city is always stunning to me. And I do think that the last uh, two mayors have been doing wonderful things to bring people together in the city. The Millennium Park, I think, is a wonderful example of the cultivation of play and affiliation and so on. But then there's the inequality in educational access, which is a huge problem still, the inequality in health access. And then, like every city, uh, you know, there's threats to people's bodily integrity. We we just had on the news examples of rape and murder. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, that that's something that people have to do a lot more about. And we also have a rather distinctive approach in this town to a, a characteristic that you find in other American urban centers, but we seem to specialize in it, and we just about lead the country in it, I am told, and that's uh, political corruption. Uh, my friend Bill uh, Simpson from uh, UIC, a former member of the city council as well as the chairman of their political science department, has done a major study on that. Have you seen that study? I haven't seen it, but having moved here from Boston... Um, also a rather uh, corrupt town. I sure. must say that whatever the corruption here is... Things get done and things work. When there's a road project, it gets done and the road is actually built to last. You know what happened with the Mass Pike, of course. They ripped off the money and the road wasn't built to specification and it fell apart within three years. The very same thing happens to Chicago streets. Well, I I don't know the detail, but I have the feeling that still it's a city that works for people in a way that Boston never has. I really disagree with you. Mm -hmm. I think the corruption... Uh, exacts a very high price Uh uh, and, Uh of course, uh, burdens uh, the less well-equipped and the less moneyed more heavily than it does the more uh, moneyed and the more educated, for that matter. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that, uh, according to the data compiled by by, uh, Simpson and his colleagues, if you go to the city council, all members of the city council from 1965 forward, one-third of them have gone to prison. Good heavens. Yes. I've been convicted and gone to prison. Well, that's for, that is for corruption. amazing. For corruption. Including the man who once represented Hyde Park. Of course, you, you, you do have the fact that the legal system is working and that they do go to prison. Yeah, I suppose. Now, that's not true in lots of countries, after all. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was just uh, before I came to your show, I was doing an interview on email with an Italian journalist, and he was talking about why Italy got into such deep economic problems. But, you know, think about Berlusconi. To, to have that kind of control over the media and stifle mm-hmm. political dissent, uh, that, that doesn't happen in Chicago. There's, there's dissent, and there's not that kind of uh, iron control over the media. And the, the, the corruption um, get, gets caught. 
And we have yet to see whether Berlusconi is really going to be punished for all the stuff he did. Well, I think much of the corruption doesn't get caught. Uh, but I'm an older hand in Chicago than you are and yeah, much more yeah. cynical about Chicago. Uh, nor was well, I Well, I fell in love with Chicago well, when apparently I moved here. So. I, really, I really adore it. Uh, a, a larger framework suggests itself, a larger issue really. And getting back to philosophical interventions or philosophical approaches uh, to the search for the good life and the good society. And that is um, a political, the kinds of political philosophy that one identifies with. Uh, we've got a great bifurcation in the Western world. We speak of liberals and conservatives. Or we can, use, or we can speak of left or right, or we talk about uh, traditionalists versus improvisationalists or what have you. But there's a real dimension there, a real differentiation there, which we all recognize. Uh, W.S. Gilbert has it beautifully in uh, The Guardsman in Ialanthe, who sings, I often think it comical, fa-la-la, that every boy <laughs> yeah. and every girl that's born into this world alive is either a little liberal or else a little conservative, fa-la-la. That's a wonderful song, yeah. What do you make of those two Weltanschauungen, because they're really different worldviews. Well, you know, I guess I feel it's more complicated than that because when I have, as I do at the University of Chicago, libertarian colleagues, I, mm -hmm. I think we have lots of agreements about many, many things. And Richard Epstein, my colleague, who is a very well-known libertarian One of our favorite thinker, guests on this program. Richard uh, says to me, you know, you and I agree entirely about ends. We differ only about the means. That is, I think certain things should be done by government. He thinks mm. they should be done by He said that about agreement. you to me on this program oh, yeah? only within the last few months. <laughs> well, you know, I think it's a little more complicated than that because we have a different conception of society and government. Mm. Uh, I, I guess I think mine goes back to the Declaration of Independence. George III is illegitimate because he hasn't delivered the basis of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And I think that is the view I hold, that government's job is to deliver the basis of that. Now, if it wants to do that by partnership with private industry, fine. But the buck stops there. That is, if it doesn't work, then the government should be voted out. And I think Richard is more complicated in his view about whose responsibility it really is in the end of the day. So I think the differences are subtle and they're always moving. But, but anyway, we agree about a lot of things. But the real conservative thought that you find in the Republican Party is conservative on morals issues and not libertarian at all. So Richard, for a long time, has said same-sex marriage is an obvious issue of freedom of contract. I, I think it's an important issue of human dignity and human liberty. I don't care so much about freedom of contract. But, uh, but anyway, we agree about same-sex marriage. We agree. I, I urge the decriminalization of sex work. Richard agrees with that. You know. So we agree across the range of the moral Sex issues. work, uh, in simple translation, you mean prostitution. prostitution. Well, yes. I guess I usually use the word sex work because it isn't um, a stigmatic term. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, if we think about the whole range of job options that poor women have, what a good society should do is educate people, give them plenty of good employment options, and then if some of them decide that they want to be call girls, not uh, not not pick on them. I for do that. all the same have the impression that your way of thinking about the just society, and for that matter, your capabilities analysis in its actual content, leads uh, inevitably or uh, uh, irreducibly leads you in the direction of essentially endorsing 
what is the liberal framework when it comes to political judgment in contemporary America rather than the conservative framework? Well, it's a combination of a kind of social democratic orientation where certainly the Nordic countries come closer to what I want than many others, but with a very libertarian emphasis in areas of personal choice. I mean, great emphasis on religious liberty. I think Europe does far too little to protect religious liberty, quite frankly. I think the the ban on minarets in Switzerland is quite ghastly, and uh, it would clearly be struck down as unconstitutional in any U.S. court, and I think that's a great thing. Uh, so, you know, it's a very American attitude toward personal liberty. What about the ban on headscarves in French uh, schools? I think it's terrible because, first of all, it's unequal. You, the things that are banned are yarmulkes and headscarves. And Christians are told you may not wear a large cross, but you may wear a small cross. Mm-hmm. So nothing that Christians are religiously required to do is banned, but things that Jews and Muslims are required to do are, are, are banned. So I think it's very uh, you know, co- covertly uh, discriminatory. And in Germany, in certain pro- provinces of Germany, Teachers cannot wear headscarves to teach, but nuns and priests can teach in full habit. Mm-hmm. And when the lawyers complain about that, they say, oh, this is not religion. It's culture. It's our culture. Well, so, you know, that argument could be extended and you could, you could do half an hour in its favor in a moot court. You'd probably lose. Yeah, you could. You could. But I love the American attitude that freedom of conscience is a profound part of individual dignity and humanity, and that it should be protected for every individual against majority preferences. You will not be surprised that uh, I have almost total freedom, except when it comes to taking care of the commercials and the newscast. We're late for a scheduled newscast directly to the WGN newsroom and Paula Cooper. Extension 720 with Milt Rosenberg on 720 WGN. Martha Nussbaum, our solo guest tonight, uh, is the author of many important works in many different uh, areas of uh, what, what, what one would have to call political philosophy, ethical philosophy, social philosophy. Um, and uh, that is reflected not only in her very important separate works, but also in her book reviews, which are uh, of uh, considerable range and considerable depth and make excellent essays, whether you've read uh, the book in question or not. In fact, you can decide whether you want to go forward to read a particular book after you've read uh, her reviews. But the reviews in here are deal with, well, it's a rather broad range. You even do a little bit of literary uh, commentary, yeah. uh, particularly yeah. with regard to some uh, works in English literature. Uh, and you have a, a famous review of a man who was a colleague at the University of Chicago, but uh, uh, he was gone by the time you came to the faculty. What year did you come here, actually? I came in 1995, but I visited in 94. Yeah. And it's Alan Bloom I'm talking Mm. about, of the closing of the American mind, which we will talk about shortly, which is really an assault or a strong critique of American higher education and its failings and its continued uh, decline as he saw it and as I think I see it as well. So we might come to that, even with the University of Chicago as a case in point. But that... I defer for a moment. I really want to put directly and simply to you, is it the case that necessarily your brand of political philosophy or ethical value-oriented concern with the quality of life and how to improve it leads you in the direction of the democratic vista rather than the republican vista? Well, it leads me there, but I guess what I think is more important than that is that people should sit down and think 
and argue about these things. So I guess what worries me most about our political life is the absence of that, the constant uh, aggressive accusations, sound bites, and so on. And I think, you know, what philosophy contributes to public culture is the opposite of that. It, it's it's calm and quiet and respect. When you, when you respect somebody, you want to find out where where they're coming from, what their position is, before you decide whether you like it or don't like it. And I've heard again and again from students when I write about education, I interview students, and they say that, you know, philosophy gave them the idea that you could produce arguments for a position that you don't yourself hold. Now, I think that's an idea they should have gotten from their political culture before they took a philosophy course, and it's a little bit sad they had to take a philosophy course. I mean, you learn that in that. law school as well. Sure. Well, of course, but but they get it as undergraduates if they're required to take a philosophy course, and that's what I think they should be. Um, but, yeah, I mean, our law school, I think, is an ideal intellectual and political community mm-hmm. because we all listen to each other, and we all take each other's ideas seriously. And I love to have colleagues who are on the right because they give me the most uh, deep criticisms of my work that I wouldn't get from my uh, own self, you know. So I think what we want in in America is is a larger version of that. That is a community where people differ, but they also take take each other seriously, listen respectfully to each other's ideas. And that's what we're not getting now. We're just getting this soundbite politics where people want to do each other down. It's like kind of being at a very loud uh, wrestling match. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and I don't think that's healthy. Well, you're, in one of the scenes in Henry V, uh, one of the captains says to Flewellen, the Welshman, and to the other, and to the Irishman who are getting along very badly, he says, I would fain hear some discourse between ye twain. <laughs> Right. Absolutely. So Absolutely. I would fade here some discourse between you and me. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And let me tell you what bothers me about the democratic line. Uh, I think it uh, has it's uh, incautious to the worst degree uh, with regard to economic matters, and indeed has squandered an opportunity for recovery. It would have done much better if this is mere economics, but it would have done much better if, it, in fact, it had uh, freed capital to invest, to be active, and to make a profit. It's a simple, basic line. We will hear it from uh, Governor Romney uh, frequently in the campaign to come between Romney and uh, Obama. In, uh, beyond that, I think the general concern for intruding into our lives to make everything better or to get things under proper control, indeed to nudge us towards uh, uh, that which is good for us but we're too dumb to understand, uh, is a basically incorrect approach to life. And this, I think I come much closer uh, either to the conservative view or indeed to the libertarian view. If you want freedom, let people be free. Let them be free to make their mistakes rather than uh, trying to organize every one of their choices by tricking them or by, in some po- at some points, requiring them to make the choice that you've dictated. That's what's very much at issue with regard to so-called Obamacare. Foreign policy is a disaster uh, with oh, this administration. Can, can we just stop about I'm it? About, here I'm putting foreign uh, policy away. Okay. We won't even bother to discuss it. Because if we go back in history, yeah. well, you, this same argument that you're making now about Obamacare and other things in his program was used in the 19th century to oppose workplace safety regulation, maximum hours laws, and compulsory education of children. And the philosopher T.H. Green, who was like me, an Aristotelian, he said, you know, you got to think about what freedom really is. Mm-hmm. And you're not really free if you're hungry, if your health is bad, 
And if you don't have the wherewithal to protect your body in the place where you work. So he defended these new laws uh, inside the British Liberal Party, which was split over this issue, uh, in the name of a richer conception of freedom. And it's that richer conception of freedom that I'm defending. It's not that I'm against freedom, but I I agree with T.H. Green that you're not free if you're worrying about making ends meet in a desperate way, if you are unhealthy, if you can't walk down the street for uh, fear of crime and so on. So all of these things are parts of human freedom, and and I think you do need law. You're not free if you don't have law. (coughs) If you're ever in a place that's an anarchy, as many countries in the world are, what you see is that no one is free in those places. I started my strange radio career at the University of Chicago. They asked me to preside at a once on a once a week program called Conversations from Chicago, in which usually you had uh, a member of the faculty and somebody visiting uh, who was of some repute, and they would have conversations. And I was in the middle of all of that. I did it for a number of years, and then I was asked mm-hmm. to come over to this place, which I did as moonlighting for a number of years, until I um, uh, finally uh, took my retirement at the university. So now this is basically what I do. I mention all of that because one of the first programs I did at the University of Chicago in the Conversations at Chicago uh, uh, operation or program was a dialogue, it wasn't a debate clearly, between Milton Friedman and a friend of his, Friedrich Hayek. Oh, that must uh, have been really interesting. It really was. Is it, is it recorded? Someplace. I don't have it. It's, it's someplace <laughs> in the files of the that, university, yeah. I trust. But I mentioned that as a roundabout way of getting to it. Uh, there, is, there, there are two guys. They had very similar views, as you know, about the economy, but more broadly about the social order. And they certainly argued for minimum in- intervention, maximum freedom in the market sense as bearing upon economic transactions, but as bearing upon education as well. Friedman's great voucher plan recommendations come essentially from that same point of view. Um, but Hayek was complicated because he was the one – he was a great fan of John Stuart Mill, and yeah. he brought the correspondence of Harriet Taylor and John Stuart Mill to light and published it. And after all, what Mill was doing in the gender area was to say law has to intervene in the family to make women safe. It's got to stop mm-hmm. domestic violence. It's got to stop rape within marriage. All these things in the 1860s Mill was writing about. And Hayek, of course, um, agreed with that. And I think today most people do agree that domestic violence and rape in marriage are bad things. But but that was not the dominant view. The dominant view was, oh, that's a zone of liberty and we have to keep hands off because it's a family. In a great democratic nation uh, with which you've had a fair amount of experience and which you've visited quite often and about which you've written, uh, there's very little of that for women in India. Uh, In fact, Soti, the required uh, uh, burning to death of a recently widowed woman, is still sometimes practiced. Well, actually, there's only been one recorded case in recent history of that. The more common thing is just garden variety domestic violence. Yes, and then, of course, sure. that. But I think it's important that that's very, very common in the United States, too. In, in The difference is that there's much more poverty in India, and poverty always mm-hmm. falls particularly heavily on women because they're the ones who have to try to scrape things together to get the children enough food and so on. And so what uh, a lot of the studies show is that when there's not enough to eat, 
little girls get less food than little boys in India simply because the boy is the one who can bring in a, an income and save the family because women don't have job opportunities. So, so discrimination bites twice, as it were. It, it, it deprives women of the job opportunities, but because they don't have the job opportunities, then they get less to eat. So sure, those are terrible things, but it's also a nation that's really determined to do a lot about that. And uh, the literacy rate for women has been rising steadily. The health conditions of women are improving. So, you know, at the top, there's very great concern mm -hmm. about that. And, and the, the real challenge is that it's such a huge country with so many different states and so many different uh, local and state governments that it, it's not easy to implement any policy. And uh, this is the very moment. But once again, I endorse capitalism by stopping <laughs> as we uh, pause to listen to a few commercial messages and then directly back. And I think we go to the book, Philosophical oh, Interventions. Let me get a little water. And we will return right after this. Extension 720 with Milt Rosenberg on 720 WGN. Let's go to the book. Indeed, would you say something about uh, the choice? You've done many, many book reviews. I discovered a list of all of your book reviews, and that's probably about four or five times uh, uh, the number of uh, of reviews that are given in this one book. So these are selected, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but on what basis are they selected? And what sort of books do you generally review? Many of them are by philosophers or people on the edge of philosophy. Uh, others are, I suppose... Well, you tell me. Well, first of all, I selected the ones that were of interest to wide readership. Mm -hmm. So I left out the ones that were technical scholarship. And I also left out some that were just very brief and not very substantial. Um, so these are the ones mainly that I did for the New Republic, the New York Review of Books, and some for The Nation and TLS, a couple of other mm -hmm. things. So always aimed at a, a wide readership. And um, some of them deal with philosophy, but, you know, editors are – uh, are fun because they give you things. They ask you, will you do this? And sometimes I rise to that challenge and I learn new things. So there's even one on psychology, Phil Zimbardo's Exactly. Book. And that's the first one I want to discuss with yeah. you. But say more about the rest of them. Well, uh, quite a few on philosophy. Now, sometimes... I initiate the idea, and there are times when I felt that a book was being neglected and I wanted to bring more attention to it. Some books about women and the family, I, I did that with Susan Oaken's book, Justice, Gender, and the Family, that I thought was a major work of political philosophy. No one was reviewing it. So it goes in both directions. But um, but most of them have something to do with either philosophy or the status of women. But then once in a while, there's just something that I happen to be personally interested in, the biographies of Nehru. Nehru is my great personal – Nehru and John Stuart Mill are my two personal heroes. Mm. And so um, I'd love to write about Mill someday in one of these reviews. But anyway, I got a chance to review two biographies of Nehru, so I, I did that. And then Shakespeare, because there was a book about Shakespeare as a philosopher that I thought was terrific. And so I did it along with two other books about Shakespeare that were not as good. But uh, I got a chance to talk about Shakespeare myself, which I you haven't done in print before, because I taught a course on, on um, ideas of man in the world in Western thought with Stanley Cavell, the great writer about Shakespeare and other things. And so Stanley always did the Shakespeare. And so I wanted a chance to talk about that myself. I'd love to hear you talk about Shakespeare right now. 
Well, you know, one of the things that I did in that review was that I talked about the different conceptions of of love. And this is a book by Tzaki Zamir, an Israeli philosopher who I think is very, very good. And he had talked about how in, in Shakespeare's plays you have different kinds of of love, Romeo and Juliet being youthful, very uh, infatuated, starry-eyed love. But then he focused on, and this is what I also focused on, Antony and Cleopatra as a very different kind of love, love between mature people who are aware that love is partly a matter of knowing Mm. all kinds of details of a person's history, sharing jokes. A lot of it is about sharing jokes. And the play is full of little byplay between the two mm-hmm. that depends on the texture of a playful, mature relationship. And, and what, I found that very appealing. what about the love between Mr. and Mrs. Macbeth? Well, I didn't actually talk about that, but I think but that's fascinating. that is fascinating. And I, I think it's fascinating in the opera and in the play. Mm-hmm. I just recently saw the opera lyric. Yeah, I mean, because you can play it in so many different ways. And I, I love to act. And I think if I once did play that scene in an acting class. and Oh, you were Lady Macbeth, were you? Yeah. Um, it's very... All the perfumes of Arabia will not sweeten this little It's very hard. Hand. I mean, it's, it's a role that you can only play by trying to figure out why mm. she needs <clears throat> control so much and why she wants to give up the parts of herself that she obviously mm. cherishes, her, her yeah. compassion, her <laughs> love of children and so on. There's some something desperate and empty about her that leads her to want so much control. And if I wrote about mm. the play, I, that, that, that's, I would talk about the, the degree of kind of hollowness and emptiness that <clears throat> leads her to need to control other people. Power. Yeah. But power the that comes with... not from any positive goal, but just mm-hmm. an emptiness in, in, in herself, I think. And that leads me to uh, another a book much uh, by a, a lesser author, but by an interesting one, to be sure, uh, a fellow that I knew when he was younger and we were all at Yale University, uh, namely Philip Zimbardo, who went on in more recent years to become the president of the American Psychological Association. Mm-hmm. His book, The Lucifer Effect, which is one of your reviews. Yeah, I thought the book was really... I'm very interested in the relationship between morality and psychology, and I read a lot of psychology Mm. because it helps me think about what societies should be trying to do in systems of education and uh, what families should be trying to do. So anyway, he talks about research that Mm. bears on how people become good people, become bad. And his view, which I I don't entirely find convincing, is that it's all the structure of their situation. And so he had this famous experiment where he cast people randomly in the roles of prisoner and prison guard, and immediately the guards started to humiliate and abuse the prisoners, and then the prisoners became passive and depressed. I, I mean, the experiment was pretty badly flawed because he did give them instructions and he said you were supposed to be uh, depressed and so so it was more like a theatrical exercise than like a real experiment but the book itself reports lots of other research that is in some ways more convincing and there is a lot of research about 
how easy it is to get people to stigmatize and abuse other people and uh, sort of research of Milgram on deference to authority, mm-hmm. research of Solomon Ash about deference to peer pressure, which I think I think Ash's research is very, very powerful mm-hmm. and very convincing. What Ash did was to show people simple perceptual questions like is line A longer than line B, but he put them with a group of people who were working for him who all said the wrong thing. And if at least six had said the wrong thing, then the experimental subject went along and said the wrong thing, even though it was obvious that it was wrong. And so, boy, that's a powerful statement about how societies work and don't work. And it shows you a lot about how how evil happens. Yes, and certainly the Milgram studies, uh, in which you get people to deliver what they think are effective electrical shocks, even at a level which might do some real injury uh, to uh, uh, naive subjects, actually... It's all been staged, and it's the the man who thinks he's helping the experimenter is, in fact, the subject, and the one he thinks is the subject is, in fact, an actor who's playing along with all of this. But it demonstrates that people will, uh, commanded by authority, in this case, what gave Milgram authority was that he was a professor who had hired people to participate in these studies, and he wore a white coat. Yes, I think the prestige of science is yeah, part of yeah. that. And, and, the people who and three hired, quarters of those who do it will deliver what they think are truly yeah. uh, uh, injurious electrical shocks. And I think there was probably a class element to it, too, because he was paying these people. So he got he people who, you know, for whom that amount of money would make a difference. And so uh, so they thought the scientist was better than they were, and, and they yeah. deferred to But he, he got as much conformity to the requirement to deliver shocks from essentially middle-class subjects in New Haven uh, as he got uh-huh. from uh, essentially working-class subjects in Bridgeport. Uh-huh. with whom he did a rep- wow. one of the many wow. replications. I know all these people. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, I had something to do not with with uh, helping get the money for Milgram's original studies. I'll tell yeah. you about that uh, when we pause, as we're about to do. And uh, But I want to continue with that just a little bit. Turning to others, turning to historians, particularly historians of the Holocaust. Do you know the the book by Christopher Browning? Oh, yeah. yeah. And both he uses both Ash's work he and does, Milgram's. There was a police battalion of young men who shot Jews in cold blood during the Nazi era, and they left extensive letters and diaries. That's right. That's right. And so Browning studies mm-hmm. these. The book is called Ordinary Man. And what he says is this shows... Not so much a particular ideology, but it's something that could happen anywhere. And that sort of supports Zimbardo's contention that situational factors uh, have controlled more of the variance in human cruelty, in the delivery of human cruelty, than do deep character-based factors. Uh, but that, it's still a, it's still a, a question of considerable complication, yeah. to be sure. Uh, we shall return and talk about yet other books reviewed by Martha Nussbaum in and re- reproduced in the book Philosophical Interventions. But now to the WGN newsroom uh, for a full update from David Skinner. Extension 720 with Milt Rosenberg on 720 WGN. And directly back to Martha Nussbaum, one of the major reviews, and it's uh, been commented on by many, is your review of the book by uh, Alan Bloom, at the, then at the University of Chicago, uh, The Closing of the American Mind, uh, which was really a general assault on American higher education, which he felt by then. And what anniversary is this of the... 
let's see. I, it's some anniversary. Is it 25th? Would 25th, that right? at least, I think that yes. would be 25th. Uh, and yeah. uh, Bloom felt by then at the University of Chicago and at most major American universities and even at many of the reputable smaller colleges, uh, education had been dumbed down and had been many ways discarded. And the great Western tradition, the, the traditions and content and serious intellectual um, work of Western civilization was honored as much more in the breach than in the observance. And kids were coming through stupid, or rather unlettered, uh, untalented, uh, talented but unformed, and not capable, really, of profiting from the reading they might be doing when they got out of college. Well, I thought, first of all, Bloom hadn't really looked at enough universities. He he didn't. I mean, there was no systematic study. And later, after the review, I did that myself. And I wrote a book called Cultivating Humanity, where I really went out, talked to students, faculty, administrators at schools that I selected to be representative. So large, small, public, private, Mm -hmm. liberal arts, state schools, religious, secular. So he did none of that. And he focused on the Ivy League and a couple of others, but impressionistic. And I think he... Also had what what really bothered me was that he had two different views in the book that he never really sorted out, and one was that education is Socratic; it should be waking up the mind, generating mm-hmm. criticism, getting people to examine themselves, think for themselves, and the title suggests that what we 're seeing is the closing of the mind instead of the awakening that Socrates wanted, and that was what was bad but But then, as you go further in the book. You see a different view, and namely that the great books are authoritative and we should imbibe them rather uncritically. And I think this is a view that Leo Strauss, his great teacher, Mm -hmm. held and uh, really make ourselves in the spirit of the great books rather than using them as occasions to have self-knowledge, criticism, and so on. So I think these are two fundamentally different conceptions. The one, uh, the second one is hierarchical and deferential, and that's still, you find that still in some places, uh, including at the University of Chicago. I think the same books that Bloom loved, I also love. But I think what's great about them is that they spur the mind, to question, to think what's best, to really uh, delve into the self, to figure out what's best. And they're great occasions for arguing with your peers and trying to figure out the answer to something. And that, I think, is going on in American higher education. It certainly is going on at the University of Chicago and in in many, many other places. In fact, I particularly in my book praise the Catholic universities because they make all students do two semesters of philosophy. And I think that's a tremendously good idea. But anyway, um, Bloom, I think, was uh, what he was deploring was the lack of an authoritative list. But really, these books didn't ask themselves to be put on a pedestal. If you read what some of these people actually say, our concept of liberal education, the very phrase liberal education, comes from Seneca, who's attacking the idea of an education based on the great books. And he says he's going to use the phrase liberal to mean not education for the well-brought-up young gentleman who's read the right thing, but rather an education that makes you free. What, in your conception, is uh, the goal of liberal education? What is liberal education and what is its goal as regards what it does for or to the student? 
Well, my conception is basically following Socrates, that it's an attempt to make you a better citizen by teaching you how to think critically, to examine yourself, and to argue with others. That's the first thing. Now, there really, I think, there's more that Socrates didn't think about. Second thing it has to do is to make you know something about the world and able to carry on a conversation about the whole world, not just your little niche in the world. And so you have to learn history. You have to learn something about the global economy, and uh, you have to learn about the major world religions. I think that's indispensable, and certainly there's much too much ignorance of that around today. And then the third thing, which I think Socrates uh, didn't do, but but ancient Athens in a different way did, is to cultivate the imagination, to learn how to put yourself in the shoes of somebody different from yourself. Because if you're going to be voting on something that affects somebody else's life, you better be able to think. And do you think that we do that are. for the ordinary undergraduates at the University of Chicago? Do you I, think that do. after they've been through four years, they come out essentially well-informed about our general culture, about our history, uh, our whether United States or Western history generally? Do they know science enough to really understand what's happening in the larger world of science? Uh, if they're not science majors, of course. Right, right. Uh, are well, they well edu- Are they informationally primed for uh, for critical discourse? I mean, look, the the information about the world has exploded so much that you can't Mm -hmm. convey in a liberal arts curriculum everything that they'll ultimately need to know. So what you have to ask is what what can we do to make them better learners and give them something, but then also show them how to ask those questions. And that I think we do. I think that the courses like Philosophical Perspectives and Human Being and Citizen do a wonderful job with the critical thinking part. The science I won't speak to. I I just don't know enough about that part of the curriculum. But I think the, the goal should be to teach you the sort of thing you would need to know to be an intelligent juror uh, Fine. And, and participate in thinking about statistical evidence, DNA evidence, and so on. And then to show you how you might inquire further. And then about the world, I guess I think you have to have general basic information, but then after that – you should have a course that teaches you what it is to inquire into an unfamiliar culture Mm -hmm. in greater depth. And then if it happens to be China and you end up in India, well, you'll still know what questions What would you say about a a graduating senior at the University of Chicago who doesn't know uh, the dates of the American Civil War, who can't place it in the right decade, uh, similarly can't do that for World War I. Wars are easy memory tasks, obviously, who uh, uh, can't tell you uh, what... Who was the king of France who was executed during the French Revolution, who doesn't know what Helsinki is, doesn't even know that it's a city, mm-hmm. and in fact the capital of, uh, of another country, uh, and who has never heard of the Boyle of Boyle's Law, uh, and who can't name a single novel, student at the University of Chicago, by Saul Bellow, a leading faculty well, member. Oh, look, I, I mean, Bella was one of, of many American novelists. So yes, but at the I, University I of think, Chicago. I don't think even he would have wanted to be all put right. on a list of the great books. But how would you but, feel about a senior but, uh, but no, I mean, I, who had look, all the, that vacuity? I, I think that that's a sign that that person doesn't have a terrifically good education. But, you, you know, you're picking on facts. Well, let me tell you And why. I think that any education that's oriented towards facts to is leaving sure. out the guts of education. Well, I'm us- I'm u- you, obviously, and I'm using the index approach uh, yeah. developed by uh, E.D. Hirsch 
in his book, yeah, Cultural Literacy. I, 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 uh, Don you, Hirsch is a wonderful person. He's a friend of mine, and I, uh, but I don't think that his approach is right for you. But what I haven't yet told you is that the person I've just described was my typical graduating student in my largest course at the University of Chicago for the five or seven years in which I administered a quiz based upon E.D. Hirsch's approach on the last mm-hmm. day of classes. Uh, the typical student in that class uh, juniors and graduating seniors, or seniors at least, um, uh, didn't know any of the, th- the things I've just reviewed. To be sure, that's merely information, and you can get it yes. instantly by going to a computer. But if you don't know um, that Finland is there as a country, if you don't know or don't care about the Civil War unless about the formation of the American polity and uh, the agonies through which we went to create a nation worth preserving, uh, then there's a great deal else you don't know. Yeah, and there's I very little uh, critical thinking you can do when you're so undereducated. I'll add a last thing. Again, University of Chicago. You know Wayne Booth. I think you, I mean, you know oh, who yes, he was. Oh, yes, I did know and him, I, and he was wonderful. And mm. Wayne used to complain. He did it on this program more than once. Uh, he's gone for many years now, but he was the dean of the college for a number of years, one of the great teachers at the University of Chicago. He gave a course uh, for special students who really had to pass his muster for him to allow them into the course, Mm -hmm. in which they, um, um, I'm I'm not quite sure what they did, but they talked with Wayne Booth about his ideas, and he engaged them in undoubtedly Socratic discourse. But what his great complaint was, he found with the 15 or 16 kids in that course every year, in recent years when he said this, um, none of them, they did not share books that they had all read. The only book that some of them uh, shared was the Bible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and most of them hadn't really gone deeply into the Bible, mm-hmm. uh, either Testament. Uh, but otherwise, uh, f- except for a few things that were requi- required reading at the University of Chicago, they had no common literary uh, material that they had mastered and about which they could talk to one another. Well, I think that's a real problem, but we have to recognize what it comes from. It comes from the fact that we're a nation of immigrants. People come from many different cultures, and there's no way that it's fair to say the books that the European elite read for centuries are the ones that define an educated person. There are many, many books in the world. And if you, any list you make is going to be, uh, to a large extent, arbitrary. Now, I agree that for any given curriculum, it's good to have some shared readings, absolutely, and philosophical perspectives. Well, you could argue what should be on the great books list, of well, course. Well, yeah, but I mean, what's the point? It's just, I mean, of this list making, you could... You no, could, that is uh, not, that is not I, the I point. The point, the point is these kids don't is, read books The anymore. point is to generate a community of learners, and I think for that you need shared reading in any given liberal arts course. But whether it's the Republic or the Euthyphro that they would read, it doesn't much matter to me because what they're mm-hmm. learning – I do think Plato's hard to replace because there's no other philosopher mm-hmm. – in any culture that I know, who's written so dramatically and so enticingly about the life of philosophy. Not Aristotle, not Cicero, but also not Indian and Chinese philosophy. So I I think it's hard to find any substitute for Plato. But as for which dialogue, anyone will be a good starting point. My point is simpler. Uh, In our own courses, with the um, with the reduction of the core curriculum at the University of Chicago, something which has gone on in many universities, excuse me, around the country. Simply there is less, kids are required to read less, 
and they're held to lower standards with regard to whether they've mastered the material they've read. And I but think, you know, it actually didn't get. Re- I mean, it, it swelled, and it, it it had swollen up to a point yeah. where it occupied two full years, and that stopped people from doing anything more than the core and a major. And that's not healthy because they need to be able to have high-level <laughs> proficiency in more than one subject. So at that point, it was reduced by two courses so that it was the second most burdensome it had ever been rather than the first most burdensome. <laughs> but the content was also And changed. all of a sudden, there were these cries about rigor being diminished. Well, you know, my daughter, who was PhD in history now, didn't even apply to U of Chicago because she knew that she wanted to do a double major in German and in history and to take advanced courses in music and other things. She wouldn't have had room to do that with the core that took up two full years. When all of that was controversial at the university, <clears throat> the big fight over the Sun and Shine plan to yeah. alter the uh, core curriculum. You were on one side of the issue and I was on the other. I was on the board of the National Association of Scholars and mm-hmm. we had a big meeting here in town in which that whole uh, set of problems was directly confronted. And you were quoted as critical of what we well, were doing. I wrote an editorial in the Trib and yeah. I said that rigor is not <laughs> to be equated in any simplistic way with the number of required courses. It's a much more complicated question. Just as I anticipated, we have different views on this, and we're not persuading one another. But it's a, but it's a delightful discourse. It is. Uh, it is. Though, you know, as Absolutely. you were talking about uh, Plato, I almost broke into say, and I'm doing so right now, uh, and just in terms of literary force, quite apart from the philosophical argument, there's nothing, I think, more moving in all of, in all of Western literature than the Phaedo. Uh, mm. where, uh, yeah, where, um, but, Socrates. you know, and that's what draws people in. Um, I interviewed one student once in a business college in Massachusetts, and he said that it was seeing a movie version of the Fido at yeah. the beginning of his philosophy class. And he thought, why would a person die for the sake of an argument? Yeah. What's that about? Mm-hmm. And he had grown up, you know, in a culture where no one cares about arguments. Socrates taking the hemlock. Socrates being yeah. willing to actually go to his death in order to defend the life of argument. That's very powerful. Uh, I think I've missed... I asked this of my friend Aubrey. Have I missed one commercial break? I thought I had. Here it is. Extension 720 with Milt Rosenberg on 720 WGN. And uh, quite shortly we're going to pause again. Uh, I've been quite derelict, uh, so involved in this conversation that I forget to hit... Uh, forgot to hit uh, the last break on cue, which would have been at uh, 11.15. So, two or three minutes, and then uh, the newscast, and then we will be going to the phones and to your calls, uh, questions and or comments, surely, to Martha Nussbaum. Uh, And uh, for that, as usual, the number is 312-591-7200. 312-591-7200. The lines are open right now. You can get in there right now. If you don't mind waiting a bit, it won't be very long at all, actually, uh, for anything you'd like to say or uh, simply inquire about uh, as we continue in this conversation. Uh, and for our uh, long-distance callers listening on the Internet, on other continents or on either coast or up in Yellowknife or down in Merida, uh, you had best get to us via email, of course. The email address, uh, same as ever, extension720 at wgnradio.com. Extension 720, as one word, at WGNRadio.com. And for phones, again, the aforementioned 312-591-7200. Before we go to the phones, you've got two minutes to say anything you want to say. (laughs) Well, I guess I just want to say that I wrote those 
book reviews partly because there's so little room for people who care about philosophical ideas to talk to the general public. And I love to do that. And you can do that through the book review. But this is one great opportunity, too. And I'm enjoying it very much. Mention a few of the other reviews that you're particularly eager to have people read. Well, I think the one that I did on Susan Mahler Oaken's book on justice, gender, and the family, Mm -hmm. I particularly love because it was a book that really did blaze a trail in thinking about what justice inside the family is like. And she was very important, one of the first feminist philosophers, and she died at a tragically young age. Yeah. So I want to mention that one particularly. Um, I There's one that's never been published before, which was just because, I don't know, sometimes when you write something, it uh, turns out and sometimes it doesn't and the time moves on. It's about books about widows, Books mm-hmm. and a movie about widows in India. So I want to mention that because I think there's this preconception that women in developing countries are passive, sad victims. And this movie that I was talking about, which was uh, called, called Water, was uh, like that, that it portrayed widows in India as passive victims. But the books actually show that they're taking their lives into their own hands, organizing to fight for better conditions. And, and that's a view of poverty that I think is very important. So I I did. Uh, there are a number yeah. that I particularly enjoyed and profited from. One is your review of a major book by Catherine McKinnon. Oh, yeah. That was interesting because people think of her as the crusader against pornography, and of course she has been that. But this was a book that was about global justice and mm-hmm. about how we we think about genocide in this rather narrow way when one ethnic group is killing another, but we don't think of the daily killings of women as trophies in war or as victims even of domestic violence and murder. And it was trying to challenge us mm-hmm. to think of these categories like genocide and crimes against humanity in a, in a, a much broader way. And then there's you taking on Judith Butler. <laughs> yes. Well, one you of, know, I... There are two or three pieces which are overtly and strongly critical, and that's one of them, of course. That's one of them. I, I, I don't like reviews that just take occasion to bash somebody, and I never do that. When I do a critical piece, I really work hard on the book, and I try to be very fair. And in Butler's case, I reviewed four books of hers. But I did think that she had a... She, first of all, argued obscurely and then urged people to defer to her authority, which to me is a betrayal of the Socratic nature of philosophy, which should be very transparent, very public. So that got under my skin a bit. But then I think the view of what we should be doing was so defeatist and so quietistic. We can parody the dominant norms. We can poke fun at them. But she seems to have abandoned the hope of real large-scale social change that was at the heart of the feminist movement. And I think she encouraged, by her hip popularity, she encouraged other women to abandon that hope too. And so I was saying, no, there is this big hope for justice, and we must not lose sight of it. I think it often happens to a movement when it gets uh, comfortable, you know. I've not mentioned the name of somebody who's obviously been uh, very significant in forming your own uh, set of interests and your own great skills, namely John Rawls. John Rawls when it comes was to a colleague. Justice, and, um, yeah, and all my thought really revolves uh, a lot around his ideas. And I had the great uh, privilege to, to have worked with him yeah. as a 
as a colleague. And so my book, Frontiers of Justice, I focus uh, exclusively really on Rawls's ideas. But I, I, that, that was quite critical. But there are other ideas of his that I very much support. And in fact, mm-hmm. tomorrow in my law philosophy workshop, I'm talking about a paper of mine where I defend Rawls's idea that namely in a pluralistic society where people have different religions and different views of life, our political principles should show equal respect. And with that, we go to the newsroom, to David Jennings, and directly after the newscast, uh, on to the phones and to the email. Again, the phone lines are open. Some are still available, 312-591-7200. And for email, uh, extension 720 at wgnradio.com and to the news. Extension 720 with Milt Rosenberg on 720 WGN. And we go directly to the phones for your Questions and comments to Martha Nussbaum, author of uh, Philosophical Interventions. Why interventions? It's a question I meant to ask, and I will persist with that a little bit later. But now, directly to the first caller, that being Ethel. Good evening. You're on the air. Thank you. Uh, I'm calling because there was a brief reference to corruption early in the program tonight, and then you moved on to other subjects, which is fine. But when we talk about corruption, it also surprises me that it is almost never discussed that uh, on an, even on a national level, lobbyists and others are allowed to actually bribe legislators in order to get legislation that they are anxious for their own purposes to see go through. And that seems, I don't see how anyone could be more corrupt than that. That just seems to me such a bizarre situation. Yeah, well, I agree that campaign finance uh, reform was called for by the perception of corruption. And I think this is really why the court has agreed to hear uh, another case so soon after Citizens United, you know, to to rethink the question of whether the the now what's happening, the tremendous expenditures through political action committees does really rise to the level of creating the perception of corruption. And I think it would be a good thing to to, uh, reconsider and to go back to the serious consideration of campaign finance reform. Yes, thank you. Thank you, ma'am, for the call. Some lines are available. If you've been trying to reach us, make another quick try. 312-591-7200 is the number. Uh, 312-591-7200. We go next to uh, Bob, who joins us at WGN Radio. Good evening, sir. Ms. Nussbaum. Do you feel it is fair to burden future generations with our health care? Shouldn't each generation pay for its own health care? The common response is to stop wasting money on wars. But shouldn't this be done first before we take on new expenditures? Look, I think that future generations have to be thought of in all of our policies. There's a standard economic term called discounting, which is to say that we count the future generations not not as much as we count the present generation, but we then have to discuss by what rate we discount their welfare when we do the calculus. But sure, when we make all sorts of policies, uh, environmental health care policies, we have to think of their impact on future generations. And that's one of the real challenges that philosophers are are grappling with together with economists. And you don't believe that Obamacare is is putting an unfair burden on future generations? I don't myself, but I think that's certainly the right right sort of issue to debate. Okay. Thank you. We thank you, sir, for the call. 
Uh, what are the main terms of that debate? Uh, well, you know, I think there's, of course, the first question is, what should a decent society provide? Because mm-hmm. I'm a big believer in having your eye on the prize. And if you don't know mm-hmm. what the goal is for present and future, then you don't really have a, a have enough traction on the problem. But look, we have such tremendous inequalities in healthcare in our country. And I think it's something that most uh, rich countries have have gone beyond and and could not ever <clears throat> tolerate and i think it is it is shameful that the longevity in inner city new york is the same as in kerala a poor state in india it's fine for Kerala, which actually has pretty good health, very good health care within the uh, Indian uh, system of states. But for New York to allow an inner city community to have life expectancy that's the same as that of a very poor developing country is, is shameful. And those inequalities need to be addressed. If I remember correctly, Kerala was about the only Indian state that uh, elected a communist government some long time ago. They did. It was a very interesting kind of communist government, and it's been in and out of power ever since. It did not – it didn't function anti-democratically the way that I believe the West Bengal communist government has done. Uh, and it did uh, – it just ended up being a kind of social democratic party that worked quite effectively for education and health care. And they have 99 percent literacy for both boys and girls <laughs> against a background of 65 percent for males and 50 for females in the nation as a whole. So they've done pretty well. Here is an email from a listener in Palm Springs, California. Uh, and – I get it up on the screen. We shall read it. Uh, your guest talks of her concern about the coarsening of political debate. But more troubling is the concerted effort to silence debate, often coming from the left. Mark Stein's travails in Canada are well known, as are the shouting down of the Israeli ambassador's speech at UC Irvine by Muslim students. More recently in Australia, we've seen legislation proposed to silence media organizations critical of global warming. Shouldn't Americans be less concerned about the tone of ideas subject to the rigmarole of debate and analysis and be more concerned about the increasingly strident effort to silence debate? Thank you for another engaging program. I thank you, uh, James, for that valuable contribution. Yeah, I I thank you for it, too. And it's an issue that I'm very concerned with. I guess I don't see a trend toward more silencing. And in fact... Uh, If anything, things are a lot better than when I was a graduate student during the Vietnam War days when, indeed, then the left was engaged in a major way in silencing people who were trying to to speak out who came from the government. And um, I, I never was part of the SDS or any of the very left movements in those days. I guess I've always been a a wishy-washy liberal. I was licking stamps for Gene McCarthy in those days. And I thought it was horrible when my colleagues and friends were trying to silence uh, people from the government, stop them from speaking. And so, uh, so I think we should always protest very vigorously whenever there's an attempt to silence. Now, to carry a sign, to picket, and so on, those are civil. So anything that's civil, or to dissent, of course, and make an argument. That's better yet. But uh, but anything that tries to shout somebody down, no matter what it's for, I'm, I'm dead set against that, and I think we all should be. And we pause at this very instant for a last round of commercials. After I note that there are now some uh, phone lines available again, 312-591-7200. Extension 720 with Milt Rosenberg on 720 WGN. 
Um, let me just quickly get some clarification about the subtitle, or rather, the title of the book, Philosophical Interventions. Intervening into what? Into public debate. That's I, I considered explorations, but I thought that would suggest it was self-contained. And what I wanted to say is that philosophers have a a place in the public debate, and these are attempts to intervene in some larger conversation. Um, and you intervene in many matters that we've not even discussed tonight. Surely, oh, yeah. there's a great deal in this book about uh, um, sexual life and sexual transformation of this society. Some of which I find I disagree with you uh, on rather strenuously, but I didn't even raise those things mm. tonight. Well, we haven't gotten to a lot of interesting topics, but um, I don't the know. The trouble is we only have two hours. Yeah. And it's well, less than two hours because of the commercials. Come back tomorrow night. We'll do another okay. two hours. Okay, okay. Now we go back to the phones quickly. 312-591-7200. Julie is our next caller. Good evening. Hi. Um, I was wondering, if my question is similar to, excuse me, to the last caller, but I'm more curious as to... Regarding public discourse, how we get back to a place where civil conversation can be had without, like, um, you know, like Social Democrat or where the uh, the words that are going to immediately cause a reaction of anger, trigger words, are used. Yeah, well, you know, I think the classroom is a pretty good place to start, Julie, and and thank you for that. Um, Because I think if children learn in school what a civil community is and what words you use, and of course it has to be reinforced constantly, it has to be reinforced at every level of education, um, then they will be empowered to stop bad things from happening. When that uh, there was this uh, episode at Yale where women were being uh, called sluts and demeaned in various ways, and I discussed it with my class because I had this class in feminist philosophy that was mostly law students, and I said, what do you think would happen if words like that were used in our community and signs like that were put up in our uh, in our green lounge, which is the place where law students gather? And they said, well... Our dean told us on the first day of class that civility requires thought and restraint and and spelled out what a civil community is. And we would go over to the people who put up those signs and we would tell them that and we would remind them of those values of civility. And so what was interesting was that they felt really empowered by the fact that the people in charge had told them that we want that kind of community. So I think we all have a role to play in creating that atmosphere in which people are empowered to say, stop it. This is not a, what you do in, in a civil community. Next caller is Michael. Good evening. You're on the air. Good evening. I'm enjoying the uh, discourse. Um, my uh, question is about uh, just to see if either of you have comments about the recent article in the Tribune about uh, students going overseas um, based on, you know, cost of, uh, of you know, of a college education. It seems like you can get a half-price education overseas and, you know, uh, the travel uh, costs included. For less than $40,000 a year? Oh, oh yeah, quite a bit less, yes. (laughs) And I know, I I just wondered if you had read it. Uh, I think they mentioned colleges like King's College. I, I wasn't, of course, we're not as familiar with the colleges overseas, but wonder if you think that may force, uh, the, you know, the United States colleges to reevaluate the the cost of of an education. As a father of two, I'm obviously mm-hmm. very concerned with that. Well, I'm very concerned with it too. Yeah, I I haven't read the article. I'm sorry to say, uh, but I think people would have to think carefully 
about what kind of teaching is really going on in those colleges. Because I've spent a lot of time in European universities, and I think the quality of undergraduate teaching is is uh, not good compared to ours. There's very little sense that professors should really be involved in grading students carefully with an attention to their writing, writing comments on papers, You know, by and large, large lectures and then examinations at the final end of the mm. degree. So our liberal arts system is really pretty unique in the sense that they're small classes, you discuss things with the students, you write comments on their work. So if they're not going to get that, then they're getting cheated. Of course, is that worth the overwhelming debt that they uh, take on? Uh, compared to your education and mine, the, yeah, the uh, yeah. percentage is outrageous. I mean, what is y- your what what will universities do about this cost? Well, I think they have to raise much more money, all of them, public and private, to support financial aid. That uh, so some who are wealthier have what they call need blind admissions. That is that people are going to be supported up to the level of their need. And even that is probably not really enough, but, uh, but the ones that don't, they have to really think much harder about that. Uh, and certainly with the legal education where they haven't given much scholarship aid because they expect that students are all getting these uh, good jobs at the end. Now that they're not getting such good jobs, we're all talking a lot about that. And there's a lot more financial aid that's in the works. Sarah, thank you for the call. Thank you. <clears throat> Time is short, but I want to work in a few more. And here's an interesting email. A great guest, exclamation point. I'm a big fan of Professor Nussbaum, and I especially appreciate her reasoned balance to your conservatism. Talking to me. <laughs> she has described broadly her political persuasions. Could she also describe any religious convictions she may have and how her philosophical beliefs inform those convictions? This is from Ron, who uh, resides in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Yeah, thanks, Ron. I'm very glad to do that. Uh, I, I grew up as a, an Episcopalian, and I guess my main connection to religion was through always through music. I'm from a family of very musical people. My sister is still an organist and choir director. So, But then I felt that, for me, Christianity that I was raised in seemed too otherworldly and not enough concerned with justice in the here and now. So when I got married to a Jew, I converted to Judaism and to I'm a Reformed Jew where social justice is paramount. And I do think of the moral law as the focus. Uh, I'm, I always go through lots of doubts about uh, theism and what conception of God uh, to hold and so on. But I still am a very active member of my temple. I sing in the choir. I do Torah, chant Torah. And after I had an adult bat bat mitzvah in 2008 because I wanted to learn more. Uh, So I'm very active and and I think of it as primarily about a moral community that that supports social justice. Uh, But I think to do it in a religious way is important because ritual gives you a lot of... um, depth of reflection and emotion that that help sustain you ethically. At least that's the way I feel. But picking up on something you said but put aside, let me go back to it. What conception of God do you hold? Well, I think that there is some sort of force 
for good in in the world. And I, I don't believe in an anthropomorphic God, but but actually very few Reform Jews have in in the history of Reform Judaism. Isaac Meyer Wise, the great founder of Hebrew Union College, was a Spinozist, actually, and who believed that the, the universe had a certain rational order, but that there wasn't an anthropomorphic God. And, um, you know, I don't believe in an anthropomorphic God, but I do believe in <clears throat> In, in goodness and and human dignity, and that those have a, a, a an importance, a, a significance in in the universe that transcends that of individual human lives. I guess it's it's something that's you know I'm always going through great uh, doubt and searching about, and so I don't really think it's easy to talk about. Um, but in any case, I feel that the main uh, thing that holds me to religion is the power of ritual and community to support our moral efforts. And it's really what Immanuel Kant thought religion was, was a was a, a, a structure that helped you pursue your concerns with the moral law. And I, I guess I, I hold a view close to that, but, but uh, not being atheist, but rather agnostic about the existence of God. And a last caller coming up. Mike joins us. Good evening, sir. Uh, good evening, um, Professor Nussbaum. I believe you indicated that you, you believe that uh, freedom of association is a desirable feature of a of a good society. What do you have to say about freedom of non-association? Well, it depends what context. What do you What do you have in mind? Well, to put it bluntly, if some people choose not to associate with other people, either by according to their, their group affiliation or whatever standards that they may use, uh, good, bad, or indifferent. Uh, do, do, uh, do you have a problem with that? Uh, well, I think, you know, not, norms, uh, social norms uh, of non-discrimination, eradication of, of racial inequality, gender inequality, are in some degree of tension with freedom of association. And, and so that's why typically churches get uh, lots of dispensations when they want to engage in practices such as ordaining only men and so on that uh, that, that would be illegal if it was a state government office doing that. Uh, so I'm in, in favor of that kind of accommodation of religious preferences in, 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 in areas like that. Although, interestingly, the U.S. Supreme Court said that when Bob Jones University wanted to forbid interracial dating, they they, they felt it was justified in, in to withdraw the tax exemption for that university because uh, the government shouldn't cooperate with racism and that there was a compelling state interest in eradicating racism. So I think that it's, those cases are always very difficult where to draw the line, but uh, it's just a balancing test where it is the, how strong is the government's interest in non-discrimination and how, uh, when, when should it uh, trump the interest in, in freedom of expression and freedom of association? We have come almost to the end of the available time. In one minute, say the, crucial thing you should have said tonight that I didn't give you a, an opportunity to to voice. Oh, good heavens. Um, I just want to say I think it's great that there's a show like this. This is what really I'm talking about in that book, the importance of civil argument between people who differ and what kind of society this helps to form. So, so I'm so pleased to be here. Well, I'm delighted that uh, you have uh, come at last and we'll, we'll have you back again soon, I hope. Good. Please perhaps, do. Perhaps with a good conservative to take yeah. you away. Yeah. Uh, tomorrow night, quick word about things to come, uh, a colleague from the University of Chicago, Master Pieri, 
is the author of the new book, Games, Primates Play. He and one other psychologist join us and uh, will explain what we learn about our nature by examining the lives and the very natures, the wired-in, imprinted natures of uh, chimpanzees, orangs, gorillas, and other such friends. That's tomorrow at uh, 10. Until then, thanks to all for listening, and a cordial good night to all. Extension 720 with Milt Rosenberg on 720 WGN. I did a cruel thing about a week ago. I was at a reception, uh, and uh, a leading figure sort of in political life, intellectoid political life, was a speaker, and this was after he had spoken, and this was a reception for him. 